welcome back to America's Constitution. I'm here with Professor Akil Lamar once again. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. And uh, one of these days we'll get him to say something more than that when he says hello. <laughs> Well, you know, Andy, we go on so long in these episodes, and I love it, but, you know, why waste time at the beginning? Fair enough. I was a big fan of Seinfeld, um, and I always really admired the way Kramer would just, like, get into the scene, get into the the, 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 the set very quickly. Um, uh, and, and so I, I just, yeah, let's, let's get into it. Fair enough. And I think that's true, actually, of our podcast, that we don't have a lot of useless repartee we might have some that comes organically but anyway that's what we're doing now so i suppose we should move on. <laughs> self-refuting <laughs> yes. yes so last time we we uh had a meandering but i thought very interesting podcast um where we started off with uh a citation uh from clarence thomas uh where he cited you in a case and we wound up talking about the fourth amendment and then the nature of citation and so forth and we didn't really come close to exhausting this subject, um, uh, even if we exhausted our audience. And and I, I think that uh, you know one might ask, well, citation is that just just an ego trip? How many times does somebody mention your name, um, or or not? And I think that this really goes to questions of of authority. Um, you know that that citations are used in part. Um, I mean, in a sense, they are authority, right? When you cite something, you're you're saying, okay, here's this person that said this. You could just quote it, but instead you're citing it. So it's not just what the words say, but who said it. Um, that's the difference between a quotation and a citation, I suppose. Um, what's your view of the importance of citation? That um, it's one index of... Um, accomplishment of authority of um, influence and relevance is only one it needs to be used uh, there are many different um, ways of counting sites and we'll talk about some of them a little bit inside baseball um, uh, there, there are only proxies for certain things but they um, are pro they are sometimes useful shortcuts because look lots of people have, say lots of things in the world uh, and you have to make a decision I mean, you can't be an expert on everything. You just can't. So how do you decide um, who's a good uh, carpenter? Well, um, maybe you actually look on Craigslist and, and see what um, um, uh, uh, various people have, uh, how, how they rated this carpenter or um, um, this house painter. Um, um, and you worry, you know, are, are, are these um, evaluations on the up and up? Are they, are they, but uh, you're interested in, we'll talk about books and I think in our next session, um, you're interested in possibly reading a book. Well, um, um, what book might be interesting for you to read? Well, Amazon might actually tell you, given the books that you've read before, here are some recommendations for you. And that's using all sorts of um, big data crunching. Maybe you might want to look at actually what the New York Times recommends or the New York review of books. If you're a certain kind of person, if you think, Oh, those guys are, you know, way off on the left. I, yeah, I'm a conservative. You might care about what the Claremont review of books has to say, or the wall street journal. Maybe you care about what ordinary readers think. So you go on Goodreads or, or Amazon. Okay. So that, that, so now, um, we all, my claim is have to make constitutional decisions. 
um, for example, we have to vote every four years, and we know from uh, the earliest episodes of this podcast, I think that's a constitutional decision. Um, who should um, lead our country? And his or her first act, it's actually required by the Constitution, is to take an oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Well, you know, who's going to do that? Well, I think in order to decide whom to vote for, you have to have some understanding of um, what the Constitution of the United States requires, um, and therefore, you know, um, um, what the president is supposed to do and not do. Okay, so now I think, oh, we're, we're all, we all have to be constitutionalists, you know. You, you don't have to be a pilot of a plane. I'm not. We, I hire someone else to do it. You, you, you don't have to be able to drive a car, you know. One day there'll be self-driving cars, and your son Matthew is actually going to be leading the charge on, on, on that. And, um, and I actually was astonished. I, 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 I drive a very old beat-up car, but I, I borrowed um, uh, my wife's car, and it does practically drive itself already now with, you know, this um, fancy cruise control and all the rest. Okay, so I don't have to drive a car if I don't want to. I can hire other people to do that. I can hire other people to, to um, fly me from here to there. I, I don't self-medicate. I have physicians who tell me, you know, basically what I need to do and don't need to do Oh, but I have to decide for myself ultimately whom to vote for because I'm, a, you know, a citizen of a sovereign republic, and that's a non-delegable duty to some extent. Now, how am I supposed to do that? You know, what does the Constitution say? Well, I can't maybe be an expert on that and everything else, so I might actually take some informational shortcuts. Now, so maybe I want to, because I can't read all the scholarship that's out there. Whom should I read? Um, oh, well, you know, um, here's why, you, and I'm, I'm saying here's why you should read Amar. You should read Amar because, first of all, I'm writing books for you, you know, for a general audience, and I'm not a bozo. I'm at a highly ranked university, and 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 you might think Yale is BS, and you're entitled to, but I say no, actually, Yale isn't completely BS. Um, there are reasons why it's a highly ranked university, even though you know maybe it's too left leaning. Um, uh, you, you, one might think one might think that's true of, of much of the academy. Oh, but I'm respected by conservatives as well, I'm telling you. I'm giving you a little information cue. You know, the Federal Society actually gave me a, uh, an award. And, and oh, I'm cited. Um, I'm not just an academic who's only writing for other academics. I'm cited by the Supreme Court, not just all courts, because most courts aren't actually making constitutional law. Most courts are actually taking constitutional law from the U.S. Supreme Court. They're the ones who actually make the decisions, and then, you know, the thousand other federal judges and the tens of thousands of state judges are following what the Supreme Court said. Oh, pay attention to Amar, I'm saying, because the Supreme Court does. Um, and so I'm giving you information, and, and other scholars do, um, and across the spectrum. So I'm trying to say, because you can't know, you can't be an expert, um, but you can actually get some sense of who is an expert and who the experts actually think is an expert uh, recursively. And, and this is solving a huge informational problem because you can't be an expert on every, everyone and everything. So citations of schools are relevant. Now, what do judges think of the various justices? Um, what did they think of them when they were mere judges? Um, eight of them were federal judges, seeing federal judges when appointed. And I'm telling you, oh, actually... They did. All, the other judges really do respect Merrick Garland. When he, um, they really do respect uh, Brett Kavanaugh when, when he was, when both of them were judges on the D.C. Circuit. Now, neither of them. One is attorney general. One is, you know, on, on the Supreme Court. So, yes, at its worst, it can just be, you know, a complete 
um, sort of narcissistic um, uh, exercise. Um, and, uh, but, but actually, at least for constitutional law, um, it is about, yes, authority, um, but um, ultimately also about, um, um, see, um, I'm not simply trying to describe constitutional law, but I'm trying to prescribe it. Where should it go? And the question is, well, why, why should you listen to me rather than the guy on the bar stool next to you? And actually, our society is, I think, moving more and more towards um, expertise about expertise. Um, so we have, for, you know, for example, popular websites, Yelp, TripAdvisor, you know, things like this that are, that are very popular and they're, and they're crowdsourced in a sense. Um, so the premise is that you can gain expertise from people that aren't necessarily experts, but that have some experience or some acquaintance, just from people's interactions. And so some of that happens on Amazon. You know, people read your book, here's what they say about it. It doesn't mean they're experts um, in your book. You know, they, they just experienced your book. Um, so so conf confession, just on that, since I mentioned Seinfeld, because I, I actually do like getting the scene quickly. And, and for a later podcast, um, I'll tell um, our audience a story about how I literally um, almost tripped over Michael Richards um, um, when he was exiting um, a, a door and I was entering it for a Charlie Rose interview. And, and, if, and I came within, you know, like three inches of, of toppling the guy over. And then I jumped back um, and, and he would have thought I was trying to like do a pratfall or something. And he would have thought I was trying to be a wise um, ass and I wasn't, but Oh my God, that was almost a, a total disaster. So, so I'll tell you about that. But here's one of the reasons why I watched Seinfeld um, uh, uh, to be honest, because my fellow citizens were watching Seinfeld and I wanted to have something to talk about them with at, at the water cooler, you know, because I actually think I'm part of a culture. I want to, you know, um, chat with um, um, uh, someone, um, the, the, the person who works in the mailroom, for example. I actually, you know, care about that person as a human being. And maybe that person isn't reading constitutional scholarship, but what, what's, what's he watching on TV? Can, so I can say to him, hey, did you see Seinfeld yesterday? What did you think? Just to have, to have something in common with my fellow citizens. So, and, but, but since I basically want to spend all my time doing con law, I'm, an, I'm a con law nerd, there's only so much time I can spend on TV. So I actually paid attention to Seinfeld because there were ratings, Nielsen ratings, saying this is the highest ranked show. This is what your fellow Americans are actually, you know, watching. Um, so actually, so that's, that's quite interesting because you might say, well, the rating purports to tell you which is the best show. But in fact, it's telling you just what it says, who is watching, who, you know, which show is being watched by the most people. And this goes to um, uh, a theme that you had mentioned in an earlier podcast. Why do people talk to Bob Woodward? Because everyone because talks everyone to talks to Bob Woodward exactly network so, effects. So, well, you know why on Amazon? Because Amazon is the go-to place, and if everyone thinks it's the go-to place, it's the go-to place, and it, and then it creates huge um, information um, and and even communities where where um, um, uh, users of this product are communicating with other users of this product or or Goodreads or what have you. Um, look, you got me hooked on the crown, and the truth is, if you hadn't told me about that. I might not have paid attention because how do I know that the, the other people, that the ratings are, are people like me? And you said, oh, I like the crown, Akil, and I know you. You're going to like it. Um, and, I and, and it is very highly rated. And it does give me something to talk about with lots of, of other um, uh, uh, folks. 
Um, so, um, so part of what we do is coordinate with other people, truthfully, um, and, 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 and these coordination mechanisms create actually all sorts of interesting sort of patterns of influence and authority. It's the blind date theory of, of uh, citation that, uh, you know, that you, you, you might go out with a blind date on somebody that knows you and knows, you know, someone that you might like or that might like ah. you. Uh, and 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 then you can tell your audience how you actually met Wendy. <laughs> yes, <brought> right. <laughs> well, we met on a blind date with some details that perhaps I'll save for another time. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, but I think this goes to an interesting question about citation of uh, legal citation. You know, we, we've now identified that citation can tell you in other spheres, you know, what's popular, but that isn't necessarily the same as what is the best. And if we're talking about authority. Um, you know, the, if we're looking in, in, to come up with the right answer, let's say we're a judge, and we're looking to come up with the right legal answer, if there is a right e- legal answer to a particular question, then we might be less interested in what most more people have read than what certain people have read, people whose yes. judgment we might trust. On the other hand, um, you could also make the point that, well, if a lot of people are, are reading this and other judges have probably read it and they they're going to make reference to it, and so therefore we need to know about it, even if we don't cite it. So anyway, so, so these I, are some questions that are yeah. that arise. I, I, I think I told you this story offline, but I can't remember if we if we did it on the podcast. If so, my apologies to the audience. But let's take um, twenty sixteen, the, the election, and uh, I'm a Democrat, and in the Democratic primary, there's Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and. Um, uh, you I mentioned actually, that that only one that, that that most senators themselves supported uh, Hillary. Most of the Democratic senators right. themselves support. So that's evidence to me that people who know Bernie and the people who know Hillary and who have skin in the game and want to win are all for Hillary, except Jeff Merkley, who's for Bernie. And I like Jeff Merkley, but that's one. Uh, and the forty-four on the other side. And and Elizabeth Warren is, is in between. But that's giving me information about what actually people who know these folks and work with them think of them. Yeah, so what do the experts think? That, and, and citation um, um, statistics are hugely imperfect. Um, maybe they're negative citations, as we talked about before. Um, um, someone gets cited a lot just because you know, they're obviously wrong, and lots of people comment on that. Um, one a dear friend of mine is named Oren Kerr, and I actually did an hour-long um, a podcast-like um, a- event with him. He posted on YouTube. He had a series of – he's a distinguished professor. He's now at UC Berkeley. Um, and um, he, he had a series of conversations – with law professors. He actually asked me to be his first guest, um, and uh, it was a, uh, a lovely event. We'll, we'll put up the, the link um, to that YouTube um, uh, on our show notes. Um, and um, recently, um, Oren discovered um, this podcast, Andy, um, and he actually tweeted us out on, I think, August 9th or something. I don't I don't follow Twitter very much, but I just, you know, that this caught my eye. And he said, oh, he's going to catch some episodes. I'd be very interested to see what he, what he thinks of this podcast. He's a very um, well-respected person, published many top articles in the Harvard Law Review on that. Oh, 
Do you see? Do you see all the pieces of authority I just mentioned? Oh, you know, he um, uh, published in the Harvard Law Review. He's a distinguished university, UC Berkeley. And I didn't tell you, but I could, that he clerked for the Supreme Court. And he went to a top law school. And he is very highly cited. He's a Fourth Amendment expert, you know, as was Wayne Lefebvre, who we talked about, is Wayne Lefebvre, who we talked about uh, in our last episode. Um, I claim to be um, one as well. Um, now, um, Oren, on one metric, there's a, a, um, a thing that Hein Online does. He's actually ranked fifth among all um, uh, uh, scholars who, when they we have a certain combined um, metric. On that one, I'm actually lower, 14. Um, but here's what I'm going to tell you about my friend Oren. One of his um, uh, more downloaded pieces, they, they're counting downloads. One of his more downloaded pieces of all time is a four-page April Fool's spoof that everyone thought was hilarious, but it generated 5,000 downloads, lots of citations. But does that mean that, you know, um, that should be the equivalent of, of only, say, 3,000 cites to a serious academic piece making a serious argument? So, so you have to, you know, be careful. Every one of these things is, is imperfect. Let me actually tell you what that Warren um, Kerr piece was all about, because, you know, I, I love Warren, and it was, it was, you know, brilliant. The Chief Justice of the United States who went to fancy schools, Harvard College, Harvard Law School. He was, pre he was um, a managing editor of the Harvard Law Review. Um, Barack Obama in a different year was uh, closely, um, not too far apart in time, was president of the Harvard Law Review. And John Roberts, at, at a certain point, um, uh, gives a talk, and he's talking about how useless most legal scholarship is to lawyers and judges. Um, and um, he says the following, and this is in two thousand a decade ago. Pick up a copy of any law review that you see, and the first I article is likely to be, you know, the influence of Immanuel Kant on evidentiary approaches in 18th century Bulgaria or something. So this is a critique of uh, law professors that, you know, we have our heads up our butts and we're not actually doing stuff that's relevant to what lawyers and judges and, and, and our fellow citizens need. Um, um, so, and we'll talk a little bit more about, we'll cite by whom? By judges, by ordinary people, by lawyers, by scholars, by legal scholars. Those are five different things. But Oren, you know, who has a wonderful sense of humor, actually um, uh, posted this SSRN um, thing um, in um, uh, 2015. It was a, an April Fool's um, thing from 2015. It's four pages long, but it's, it's generated more than 5,000 downloads. And here's the title. The Influence of Immanuel Kant on Evidentiary Approaches in 18th Century Bulgaria. <laughs> and, it, and it's four pages, and, and it's a send-up, um, but it's gotten more than 5,000 downloads. Um, so, so, yes, you got to be careful about citations. Um, they're just one metric, um, and they're different ways of measuring citations. So, okay, so we, we recognize that they are imperfect. Um, but what do you look at when you look at citations? So, so for example, are there different lists of uh, of citations? Like, for example, which professors are the most cited, and do they use different algorithms to determine that? Do you evaluate the algorithms, and if so, I, I which do. do you think are are you know proven uh, to be really of into, value? I'm really I'm really into this in part because I care um, about what other people think. You know, because I'm part of a larger community, and I'm, I'm I'm using this as information. And 
I'm also reflective of what do people think of me, you know, and, and, uh, and, and how do I fit in to this larger community? Yes. Um, uh, and, um, and in the end, at the end, remember, this is going to be, this is part two of a conversation about um, scholars, scholarship, and schools. And the biggest, the mother of all rankings, which has massive economic consequences, is actually um, rankings of universities, most famously U.S. News rankings of universities that have huge financial consequences. You know, uh, whether a president of a university is fired or not, or who's hired, for which job, pivot in part on these rankings of universities, which in turn pivot on rankings of scholars, which in turn pivot in part on um, citation um, metrics and and the rest. I'm going to come back to that. There used to be a thing called U.S. News and World Report. It was actually uh, a weekly news magazine, you know, akin to Time and Newsweek. And now that doesn't exist anymore. U.S. News is basically merely a rankings agency. That's that's basically what it gets almost all its revenue doing. It's almost purely online. There's no more weekly U.S. news uh, and world report that you can pick up um, um, at the drugstore, which you, or you could subscribe to, which when you and I were growing up, I used to read U.S. News and World Report. It was a little bit more highbrow version. It was like a, 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 The Economist or something compared to a slightly you know, less um, uh, uh, comprehensive Time um, and Newsweek, and and Newsweek folded and then was revived as the Daily Beast, and then folded, and now it's coming back. Okay, so U.S. News is a ranking. They're, they're not the only. They're ranking universities. You know, um, Moody's, Standard and Poor. These ranking agencies. They're, they're ranking debt worthiness. These things are big. They have important economic consequences in the world. Um, so we're going to come come um, back to U.S. News um, at the and, end. And in fact. You know, there's a possibility that Donald Trump may actually suffer legal consequences because he misstated, allegedly, um, the value of certain properties and so forth, in part for tax reasons, but also because he wanted to be viewed as being worth more so he could be ranked higher on the Forbes, uh, you know, list of the wealthiest people and that this would be very important to him. So talk about consequences. Oh, and there was a thing called Trump University, and was it a real university? And there have been lawsuits, fraud suits, that people misreported data to U.S. News. Um, uh, I, uh, one of the schools actually was in Philadelphia. I can't remember sort of which one. And there was a lawsuit that they misreported data to U.S. for their business school, I believe. Um, maybe it was Temple? I'll have to look it up. Drexel? I um, can't remember which one, but a, re- a lawsuit saying they misreported data to U.S. News so, so they'd be higher ranked in, in the system. And there was a fraud suit brought saying we went to this um, um, a business school. It was a business school not um, um, because U.S. News ranked their um, um, uh, online program, like the best online business program or something like that. And we, we went there rather than someplace else. Be, um, because they um, defrauded U.S. News, who um, uh, misled us. Temple, okay, and 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 one of my closer friends uh, works there. I've I've lectured there. I I I really like Temple a lot. Um, but I'm telling you, this this is this is almost as big as um, uh, college football rankings, which um, are big business. Okay, so. I'm going to eventually come to ranking of schools. 
um, um, and, and all the debates about them. But now I'm talking about ranking of scholars and scholarship. These things linked up a year and a half ago. U.S. News suggested that it would actually start including statistics about scholars' rankings um, and citation um, rankings uh, as part of the information it uh, provides about universities. Um, they, they, they said they were not going to take this data that we're going to collect about which scholars at which schools are most ranked. We're not going to put that into our ranking formula yet. But first step is we're going to collect the data and report it. And then people were thinking, well, that's step one. Step two is after they do that for several years, just getting the data out there, and you can pay for it um, if you're deciding where you, you want your kid to go to college or if you're supporting your kid even for law school or the, the students themselves. You can pay for this information about the schools. And, and U.S. News said, we're going to start collecting from Hein Online, which I mentioned before, data about um, which schools are um, – how law schools – have the most um, pro, uh, prolifically cited scholars. If they did that, well, that's going to have implications for who a law school, whom a law school might, might hire or not. You hire someone who's highly ranked, that um, a highly cited, that improves your um, uh, citation ranking. And if that's going to be uh, factored in by U.S. News and World Report eventually into their school rankings, you're going to pay attention to that. U.S. News only recently apparently made a decision they're not going to do that, but it generated a big controversy in the law world, whether U.S. News, whether these rankings are um, useful in any way, shape, or form, or whether they're just bogus. My view, every citation study has some usefulness, and you have to take each one with a grain of salt because they're measuring different things, but maybe you put them all together and you begin to get a picture, a composite. So... Um, let's talk about um, different ways of, of thinking about things. I, first, you, we asked a big question earlier. If you're, if you're a law professor, whom are you trying to write for? You know, um, and uh, I, here are at least five possibilities. There are probably some more. Oh, you're writing just for other legal academics. Okay, and that's fine, um, but maybe who cares about that? And that's John Roberts' critique. It's the influence of Immanuel Kant on, okay, uh, Bulgarian, 18th century Bulgarian evidence law. Two, not just for law professors, but for the, the entire university. Uh, and, um, and now this is the law and movement, and it's law and philosophy, and, and, and John Roberts is mocking that because it's Immanuel Kant, you know, or law and history, and John Roberts is mocking that because it's 18th century uh, Bulgaria, um, but um, law and history. Law and philosophy, law and economics, law and um, uh, uh, psychology, okay? And that's the interdisciplinary turn that law professors who used to be kind of um, uh, have a little bit of an inferiority complex compared to other people in the university, they all have PhDs. We often don't, mere JDs. Um, we're, maybe we're merely tradesmen and they're pure academics. So, so maybe you're trying to actually write to be respected by your fellow academicians. So for me, that would be, oh, I don't just care about what people in the law building think of my work or other law buildings. I care about what Gordon Wood thinks. Oh, and I do intensely care about what Gordon Wood thinks, who is a distinguished American historian, or Eric Foner, who's a distinguished American historian. 
um, or in political science, because I also um, teach political science and, and constitutional law studied in poli-sci departments, in law schools, and in history departments. I care about what Norm Ornstein thinks, or David Mayhew thinks, or Stephen Smith thinks. So, okay. So, are, are we just thinking about is, is some academic, some law professor work, is it cited by law professors? That's one possibility. Is it cited by other academics within a university, not a polyversity, a university where you're supposed to have different disciplines talking to each other? And, and Roberts is mocking both of those things because he thinks legal scholarship should be written for two different categories, which are more where he lives. Lawyers, he used to be a great lawyer, appellate litigator. He had Neil Cottel's job at Hogan level, uh, Hogan, it was in, Hogan and Hartson as it was then, before Neil got it. So he's this great appellate advocate, a lawyer, not a theoretician, not an academic, but, but a, a, the best appellate lawyer, Supreme Court lawyer of his generation. And he's finding these law reviews useless because they're not you know, giving him the stuff that he finds useful. Um, or as a judge, you know, he's saying, oh, this legal scholarship isn't so useful anymore. Remember who his mentor was, Henry Friendly, for whom he clerked. He also clerked for William Rehnquist. But Henry Friendly, in my view, was the greatest judge, never became a justice of the 20th century. Oh, I just ranked him. You know, and by what metric, Akil, do you think Henry Friendly was the best? I do, and I can give but here's one of the reasons why. Henry Friendly was a great scholar as well as a great lawyer and judge. So he, and as a, uh, so, um, um, but um, then I'll, I'll come back to Henry Friendly in just a minute. Um, so legal academics, one um, possibility, all academics, two, lawyers, you know, and then we'd look at, are you cited in legal briefs? Three, you know, John Roberts as an appellate lawyer. Four, um, judges or, or actually a subset of them, maybe justices, you know, just, just, just U.S. Supreme Court justices. Yeah, in con law, that's the game. Um, or fifth, the general public. And Robert, see, as a lawyer and a judge, is making fun of scholarship because he thinks it's too much writing for just other legal academics or maybe other academics. What does it mean to write for that audience? So in other words, I can understand, you know, what you said, like, okay, law and economics, law and, uh, you know, philosophy, law and physics, you know, or whatever. I understand that interdisciplinary category. But what's the difference between writing for other legal academics and writing for practicing lawyers? Okay, so um, we... Um, so we're not doing interdisciplinary stuff in this hypothetical. So we're not doing law and economics or law and philosophy or law and history. Um, we're, we're, let's imagine, for example, we are um, um, uh, uh, um, jurists, um, we're law professors, and um, we're interested in um, perhaps not what are the most um, litigated issues in our field. So we're not, let's say you're a tax lawyer a tax law professor. And um, you could approach that from an economic point of view and, and be a PhD economist, and there are some great tax professors who are PhD economists. You could be more practitioner-oriented. There are seven issues that um, the tax lawyers are having real difficulty with right now, and you try to pick the issues that they care the most about. And, and, you, and, and there are publications where tax lawyers are writing for other tax lawyers about you know, issues of the, the, the most recent issue in the, the tax code or something, tax notes, for example. Or if you're um, writing for other 
law professors, you know, you might be actually writing about, um, um, let's say you actually want a lot of um, law professor sites and you would care about what law professors are thinking about. Oh, well, you might write an article about the constitutional tax angle in uh, the Sebelius case, the Obamacare case, um, or, the con- or the constitutional angle in a case I decided more than 100 years ago called Pollock, in which the U.S. Supreme Court held the in- income tax unconstitutional. My friend Bruce Ackerman wrote a spectacular article on that, the Columbia Law Review, I think one of his best articles ever, and it's very royally. Or, you know, in my new book, I talk about Hylton versus United States, which is a really significant U.S. Supreme Court case, in my view, the biggest case decided before John Marshall is chief justice, um, argued by none other than Alexander Hamilton, the only Supreme Court case he ever argued, and he won it unanimously. And maybe no tax practitioner today cares about Hylton. But, but academics might because it actually has implications, for example, for constitutional law, which ha- generates a lot more sites in the legal academy. Um, and so, in fact, Brian Leiter, um, who writes a blog about the Legal Academy, um, has just this week, just since our last episode, Andy, amazing, um, been publishing all sorts of data about citations by academic discipline. Um, so he has the 10 most cited people, of, um, um, uh, 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 and I'll give you the metric, but it's, it's in the last five years, which legal scholars have been most cited um, in um, uh, legal scholarship um, in the last five years. And it turns out, and there's, he has a top 10 list. First of all, he says, here are the top schools. Um, and, and don't worry, U.S. News and World Report isn't going to be using this, but it's still interesting data. And then he has the top 10 individual scholars. Um, um, full disclosure, I'm on the list, but pretty you know, low. I'm eight or something like that. Um, and if you had counted a different way, I wouldn't even made the top 10. They didn't count Cass Sunstein because he's off in government service right now. They didn't count Mark Tushnet because he's retired. They didn't count um, Richard Posner because he's retired. If you just put those three on, I bet actually I wouldn't have even made the top 10. And, and so but I'm just mentioning that. So, so Brian Leiter also says, oh, but almost everyone, eight of the people in the top 10 do con law. Con law generates lots of legal citations by other legal academics. Um, and um, so he's now saying, oh, but let's do it um, area by area. Here are the, here, area by area. Here are the top 10 most cited tax law professors. Here are the top 10 most cited contracts professors and commercial law professors and law and technology professors. And, and that's how far he's gotten. He's gone over the next couple of weeks, you know, tell us about individual. But if you're a tax person, and you cared most of all about citations um, by legal academics, you might be inclined to write an article about constitutional tax law issues, even if most practitioners don't care about that because that's not what they're doing day in and day, day out. So, um, but you would be writing for other legal academics, um, and, and there actually are spectacular constitutional law tax articles. One of the best of all time, in my view, is a piece by Bruce Ackerman um, in the Columbia Law Review. Oh, 
um, I mentioned, see, that's a high-ranked law review, see, um, and so I'm, that's authority. And Bruce Ackerman is a colleague of mine at the Yale Law School, and he went to Harvard undergrad, and he clerked for Henry Friendly, you see, as did Philip Bobbitt, and as did John Roberts, and as did Merrick Garland. And so all of the things that I'm saying, they're chock-filled with implicit and explicit appeals to authority of a certain sort. But yes, one kind of tax professor might be most interested in what the tax lawyers, the practitioners, are trying to solve day to day. A different one might be interested in, you know, what are the most theoretically interesting questions as judged by what other legal academics are writing about. Um, many of whom actually may be only dabbling in tax. They really are constitutional people who just have a tax interest. Bruce Ackerman has a tax interest, but he's mainly a con law guy, you see. Um, I have written stuff about tax. I'm very proud of the stuff that I've written about tax, but I'm approaching it mainly from the perspective of constitutional law. Now, now so, I've got to tell you about Henry Framley at, at a certain point. but Yeah. So, you know, this discussion um, is interesting to me as a physician because it strikes me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the the literature of law and medicine or the academic literature is seems to me comes they come about in different directions. So um, authority in in the medical field comes largely from what journal your uh, your article appears in. Yes. And part of the reason for that is that before it's going to appear in that journal, it's going to be reviewed by your peers. Right. Peer reviewed, double blind. Right. Well, double blind is the is a discussion of of how studies are done. Not everything. That uh, appears in peer-reviewed journals or, or double-blind studies. Oh, I meant, I meant just blind that the, the reviewer doesn't know um, who the author is, mm -hmm. and the author might not know actually who the reviewer is. Right. Um, so really, um, when it when it appears in the journal, it's already been sort of pre, uh, you know, stamped, you know, with approval. Right by and, authority, right. you know, because they don't just take the guy from the bar stool and and make her or you know him the reviewer. You know, they're they're picking already experts. And again, how do we know that those are the experts? You know, um, but even if they, they are been, experts, you know, to begin with, their article still doesn't get in just on that basis. Uh, oh, it's, I know, but but, yeah. but but they're partly experts because they published in the New England Journal of Medicine right. or JAMA or, or what have you. So you see, you know, and, and they're at Harvard or Johns Hopkins or Mayo Clinic, you know, or a Montefiore Einstein or, or whatever. So, so, you know, we're already seeing all of these, you know, uh, hermeneutic circles of of authority. But so in the medical field, I think people are less concerned with how often the article might be cited. Um, but perhaps the reason for this is that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the to get an article in a law journal, you've got to get it through, it seems like, students. It's a brilliant point. And this is why citations are important to me, because you're just right. First of all, in medicine, you know, what would be the ranking game? I would say one big one is grants. Oh, and we're, not, and we're talking about money, okay? And, um, and there's a lot of um, attention that goes into who gets grants because we're talking about gazillions of dollars. And, um, and med schools, I, I know, are, you know, because my wife is, is a physician. Um, one of my brothers is a physician, academic physician. And my wife is an academic physician. And one of my brothers, a neurosurgeon, is an academic physician. Um, he used to be at Yale and is now at USC. Um, she's at Yale. Um, and 
um, schools are ranked, med schools, by um, how, how much grant money they bring in. Um, okay, and that's a ranking system. So it's just like UC US News has um, rankings of colleges has implications for uh, how much alums are going to give and then what schools people want to uh, uh, attend. Um, okay, so yes, in medicine, there's peer review, and so journal placement counts for a ton. And in law, because actually the um, law journals are published by second and third year students, and what do they know? Um, at their best, if they're smart, they ask professors, um, is this good or bad? But they only do that some of the time. And why do that? Because I think they're not experts, and they should ask us experts, but they often don't. And, and they may not know who the experts really are, even if they reach out. You know, you know I'm more critical of my friend Erwin Shemarinsky, um, and we talked about that in the last um, episode, I say, oh, we get cited by, cited by students, but not really by conservative judges or or, or justices and um, or conservative law press professors for for that matter. Okay, so the journals are being published by students who don't know very much. So a better metric um, would be citations after the fact rather than placement before the fact. Just right, Andy. Now, since we're talking about legal. Um, uh, law journals, because remember, not all citations are to law are of law journals. Um, they might be citations. I stopped writing law review articles twenty years ago. Um, I wrote law review articles for the first fifteen years, from eighty five to two thousand, and I stopped doing that. I tried to write books instead for a general audience. Okay, um, but here's one of the reasons that Henry Friend you see is preeminent. Let me take Henry Friend. And I'm going to tell you why, for me, he's an authority, why he's an expert, you know, why he's highly ranked, not just by me, but by everyone, or everyone that I respect. So um, first, he goes, and he happens to be Jewish American um, from uh, um, upstate New York. Um, and one of his famous law clerks was actually born in upstate New York. That law clerk is named John Roberts. Roberts then moves to the Midwest. Okay, so Henry Friendly goes to Harvard College at a time that they don't take very many Jews, truthfully, and Harvard Law School, a time when they're not taking very many Jews, and graduates first in his class. has the highest grades in the history of the Harvard Law School. And that mattered back then. Oh, I just told you, you know what grades are? I mean, they're a ranking system, you know? And back then it was blind, graded, um, just like you see the peer-reviewed um, uh, journals are, are blind. So everyone writes an exam, and in class after class after class, the professor's saying this is the best exam. First, the highest grades in the history of the Harvard Law School, president of the Harvard Law Review, um, um, and then clerks for Brandeis. Okay, so that's the young Henry Friendly. And then he becomes, he, he goes into private practice, and he's, um, a preeminent lawyer, um, and eventually founds his own firm, um, which is now called um, a, a Jewish firm, uh, because in those days, the, 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 the highest ranked, oh, I'm appealing to rankings again, firms in New York in the early um, 30s and 40s, old money firms were basically white, white shoe law firms, you know, run by the Goyim um, uh, and um, the Gentiles. Henry Friendly found a Jewish law firm. Um, uh, today, it's uh, called Cleary Gottlieb. He was he not just a partner at a top, top, top New York law firm. He was 
a founding named partner. That's that's the highest you can be. And and he they were general counsel for Pan American Airlines. Oh my gosh! So he was both because um, usually you're general counsel for a firm. Um, or you're at a top law firm that has many clients, but you wouldn't be both. You would be general counsel in-house at a firm and the head of a, of a major law firm that has many clients. He was both. I can't remember. It was the mornings he spent at Pan Am in the Pan Am building, which is now the MetLife building, and the afternoons his law firm or the reverse. But he was the go-to New York lawyer, and he knew private law, he, you know, contracts, um, uh, property, um, mergers and acquisitions, securities law, you know, um, um, and New York is, you know, the London, the Paris, it's, it's where, you know, all the complicated um, uh, legal transactions involving lots and lots of money. Maybe DC is, is con law focused. New York is commercial law focused. It's the, you know, the commercial center of America, and he's the number one lawyer in New York, the go-to guy. And then he's named by Dwight Eisenhower to be um, on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, um, which is headquartered in New York. And he eventually becomes chief judge of that circuit. And he never gets on the Supreme Court, and it's not fair because he, he was the best. Why doesn't he? Uh, there's a, there are other articles about that. A lot of it's just luck. You know, um, there are not very many slots and, and just timing by the time. Um, and there weren't very many Jews. Um, and, um, and there was one Jewish thought on the court, and it was Felix Frankfurter, all the best law students, clerk for Henry Friend. And I mentioned some of them. I'll mention them to you again. Um, John Roberts, uh, Merrick Garland, uh, Ray Randolph, who's a judge on the D.C. Circuit, um, emeritus, Michael Boudin, president of the Harvard Law Review, distinguished judge on the First Circuit. Pierre Laval, you know, a very distinguished judge um, on, the, on the Second Circuit. Those are the judges. Academics, Philip Bobbitt, um, Bruce Ackerman, David Curry, um, uh, Larry Kramer becomes dean of the Stanford Law School. He's now head of the Hewlett um, Foundation. Um, my colleague, John Macy, um, uh, professor at Harvard, Rainier Crackman, he used to be at Yale. So he's producing top, top academics, top judges, top um, uh, lawyers, um, and but here's the final thing about him. He's, he's a great lawyer, um, but he's and a great judge, um, but he's also a great scholar. While he's on the bench, he's banging out article after article that, wait for it, are really highly cited. Um, he wrote, you know, several of the most cited law review articles of all time. So he's, as it were, a scholar and a gentleman. He's a scholar, scholar. Um, um, he knew more law um, uh, than any other judge of his time. He, he read every single appellate case that was decided, that was being decided every day. There, there were fewer cases then than now. He'd go home every night with a huge stack of slip, slip opinions and, and read what all the other circuits were doing. He was an expert of, on both what's called private law um, and um, like uh, uh, contracts, um, commercial law, um, a property, and public law, the law kind of, private law is the relations of, of, of individuals to each other. Public law is kind of like your relationship to the government. Constitutional law, for example, would be um, public law. Um, administrative law, the law of administrative agencies. Um, international law, the, the law um, involving um, countries with each other. So he knew all law, public and private, 
He was a lawyer and a judge and a scholar. Um, that's when, for a brief moment, maybe a person could try to do it all. Um, and these worlds have actually broken apart now, and the judges you know, are in communication with other judges, and the lawyers are in touch with lawyers, and law professors are maybe just talking to each other or maybe just other people in the academy. The public is often left um, um, out of the conversation altogether. Um, and there was a time, um, and, and his students, like John Roberts, are now mocking the very law reviews. John Roberts was executive editor of the Harvard Law Review. John, uh, Henry Friendly was president of the Harvard Law Review. And what John Roberts is saying is the Harvard Law Review today is publishing things that judges and lawyers aren't interested in. Um, they're, they're talking about problems maybe that um, they're writing about hermeneutics. They're writing about deconstruction. Um, they're writing about issues that are very um, um, adaptive preferences that might be of interest to lit departments or to um, psych departments or to philosophy departments or to economic departments, but they're not starting with a legal problem that needs to be solved you know, by a judge within the next three years. Um, that's John Roberts's critique. Of course, this is a problem in a lot of fields the, that this, the world gets more complicated. It's hard to be a generalist. It's hard to have your finger in, in all these different fields. Um, what you're saying about uh, Judge Friendly is that he was, um, you know, he was an expert in many different fields. That's hard, that's hard to do. And one yes. might say also, you know, you're talking about these different uh, realms that an author might write, a legal author might write for. You're going to write for legal academics, going to write for, for the academy, et cetera. Now, you've, you've chosen to write for the general public in recent years. But if that were, if that were the case in medicine, if you, got a, if you had a doctor that instead of writing for, like I'm an ophthalmologist or retired ophthalmologist, if I, if I were to write a serious paper, I would write it for, and I have written actually for something like the British Journal of Ophthalmology or something like that. Um, right. I would not write a book on, you know, my life as an ophthalmologist or, you know, or, or even, you know, interesting facts about glaucoma for the, you know, for, for your, the general public. Um, that would not be taken seriously by the academic world, no matter what I put in it. Whereas well, you're writing, are, hold on, so you're on. writing for the general public and yet you want it to be taken seriously by courts, by, by right. you know, other professors and so right. forth. So uh, would you say this is innovative on your part? Were other people doing it before you were? Have, have you been judged to be successful at it in the sense that, I mean, obviously you can sell books, but that's only a measure really of whether it's taken seriously by the general public. Has it been taken seriously by the academic world? And perhaps is part of this because of what I said before, that you know, what's the difference if students think your work is, is, is important? You know, you're, in this case, you, wherever you write it, it can be reviewed by those you know, post-writing, which is when the judgment of legal writing yes. takes place. Right. So let me just take a step back and ask you honestly a question, because there are um, in medicine people who do write for a general audience. My wife loves uh, uh, reading Atul Gawande. She has like six, five of his books or something, or you see um, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you know, on CNN. Or, so there, there are um, in physics. Um, I, I, I mentioned this last week. 
Stephen Hawking was, especially young, um, apparently a great uh, theoretician, but he actually also, um, also wrote um, um, uh, uh, books that, that sold lots of copies. There's a new book out. Um, it's published by my publisher, Basic Books. I haven't read it. It's interesting. It's called Hawking Hawking, um, and uh, that is selling Hawking, and the thesis is that um, that Hawking sold out, as it were, and um, actually wasn't maybe the, you know, this is a critic, wasn't as great a theoretical physicist as was claimed, um, but there was a whole industry that emerged around him and he became a great popular, I don't know if that's true um, or or not, Um, um, uh, was Carl Sagan, for example, um, a great theoretician in any way, or m- merely a popularizer. Um, have there been uh, um, folks in um, medicine um, or um, science more generally who actually were theoreticians who actually also reached the broader? A hundred years ago, or hundred fifty years ago, I would have said, "Oh, Darwin actually has a big." theory and he's writing it for, um, for a broad audience voyage of the beagle you know origin of species or something like that so so before i answer about me and law are there examples in science and medicine well i think Feynman is a good example of, of someone who's written uh to uh you know but he's he's a physicist um you know so you said science and medicine in medicine it's it's a little harder because Doctors, um, you know, medicine advances very slowly. You know, so what's a great scientific author? Um, you know, it, in the in the journals, it's somebody that might, you know, have a very incremental. You know, maybe you know, Dr. Fauci might be mm-hmm. an example of of someone mm-hmm. who's who's crossed that uh, that area. Um, and not necessarily because he's a great writer, but because but because he was a great doctor. That, that intervened at a key time with a difficult mm. illness that affected the world acutely. That's very different from something like glaucoma, which has been around for millennia, and you know, knowledge advances very, very slowly. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Incrementally. Well, yeah. And, Vinita, my wife, has been a fan of Anthony Fauci's for like 20 years. She was telling me about Anthony. Oh, she'd see him because he wasn't nearly as famous pre-COVID. But, but, you know, she'd see him on TV or see him quote some of these, that's Anthony Fauci. He's a serious guy. So, so she's followed his career for a very long time, apparently, and has thought this guy is substantial. Yeah. But is that what I just say? That's about authority and expertise and reputation. And, you know, what do other doctors think about famous doctors? Well, I, I don't know what they say about Sanjay Gupta or Atul Gawande. I know that my wife reads um, Atul Gawande and, and finds it very um, uh, interesting and useful. Right, but that doesn't mean that he was important in terms of his research. Right, I, and, I, and yeah. I don't know. Right, so I think it's um, rare. I mean, Dr. Fauci might, is, comes to mind, but I think that, uh, you know, law in a sense lends itself to it because because of the sort of narrative nature of, of law. Well, um, I, we're building on what we said in the last week's episode, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about you know specific metrics and why each one is problematic, even though, candidly, full disclosure... I do pretty well on a lot of these metrics, but I think each one is problematic. But as I said before, I don't just do law. I do constitutional law. And constitutional law is not just designed for experts the way tax law. Most tax law is actually designed for the people who do tax law, who are the tax practitioners. Because 
I love tax law and I don't do my taxes anymore. You know, because it's just too damn complicated. And what I love about it are deeper theoretical interests rather than filling out the little spreadsheet, you know, which is, you know, tedious in the extreme. So I pay someone else to do that, just like I pay someone else to, to um, fly me um, in a plane or I might pay someone else to paint my house. I pay lots of people to do other things. Tax law in its nitty gritty is not for ordinary people. My belief is the biggest themes of American constitutional law, like how to think about the presidency, oh, they're for ordinary people. And ordinary people have to think about that because they can't ask their tax lawyer to tell them who to vote for for president. They have to do that. I tell my ta- I just say, here it all is. If you have any questions, ask me. So like, if it matters whether I did it by Zoom or not, ask me and I'll tell you. I did this in person. I did this by Zoom. You know, but you, you, you tell me what I need to tell you. You know, here are all the pieces of paper. You deal with it. And, and he gets paid pretty well, but I don't want to have to deal with it because I instead want to spend my time palling around with you, talking with you, which I do. You know, we spend hours a day even offline, you know, talking with you, spending time with my family, and thinking about constitutional law, you know, and teaching my students. That's my life. That's what, that's what I want to do. So I'm thinking, oh, Ordinary people really need to know about the presidency. And I've got a lot to say because I now have a theory that um, George Washington is going to be able to tell me more than I understood 10 years ago about the U.S. presidency. And I have a ranking of presidents. And why is that ranking important in any way? Well, one, I put it in the book, and you asked me about this. You said, like, well, why are you ranking presidents? And I said, one, because I think it's kind of interesting and fun, and Americans like to rank. And you said, well, that's good, but that's not a good enough answer. I mean, that's interesting, but really, Akil, why are you doing this? You know, because you're always pushing back. And I came to identify certain reasons why it matters if, you know, George Washington was really the number one founder and, and James Madison wasn't. And George Washington really was a better president than James Madison, why it, it matters. And, and here's, you know, ripped from the headlines. They say, because James Madison, you know, almost lost a war, um, and and you don't get on Mount Rushmore if that happens, and 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 um, and and it's been a bad week for Biden. Now I don't think he's uniquely responsible. There, it's a, a failure as, as many fathers, um, actually, um, uh, and all the presidents, and we, the American people, are all complicit in this. And, uh, but but I'm going to tell you, oh, wars are really important in understanding presidents, how they respond to emergencies. George W. Bush didn't do so well in Katrina. Let's see and. And you might say, that's not his responsibility. That's the people in Louisiana. No, presidents actually are crisis managers in chief. That's part of the fundamental job description. So let's see if Ida is handled by the federal government as well as states and localities um, better than Katrina. Now you see how complicated it is because we have to judge presidents. Every one of us does. And yet two things. It's a federal system. So if there's a screw up, how much of it is actually the state's fault? How much is it the federal government's fault? Oh, and over time, okay, because this has been a 20-year war, how much of it is actually Biden's fault versus Trump's fault versus Obama's fault versus George W. Bush's fault? And my claim is these are actually complex, like, historical questions about responsibility. But actually, to be a good voter, you have to have some account of that, truthfully. Ours is a complicated system, and you have to, in the end, you're supposed to pick the best person on election day now, that's my theory of the presidency. And my theory of the presidency is, oh, 
it's complicated. Oh, and I, and I didn't even talk about whether we should blame Congress or not, because, you know, Congress, you know, they, they don't do anything at all. And then when things go wrong, they bitch. Welcome to Congress. OK, I understand that now because I'm actually a political scientist and I understand it's one versus 435 and, and what the game theoretical dynamics are and that political science incentives are. OK, I want to try to communicate some of that to ordinary people. How to think about the presidency, how to think about the presidency versus Congress, how to think about one president versus predecessor presidents, how to think about presidents in war, how to think about presidents in crises, because you every because you need to know that. Maybe you don't need to know every little bit of tax law. You've got a tax expert. Just give her or him all the papers, answer their questions honestly, and, and pay your taxes. Um, but every four years, you, each of you, my fellow Americans, has to decide how you're going to vote on the president. And I actually, and that's, you're gonna, you need to understand a little bit of constitutional law. So I believe, given that that's my theory of constitutional law, it comes from the people, the people regularly have an input. You might say, oh, Keely, you're an idiot. Um, it's the Supreme Court who decides constitutional law. I say, fine. Where does the Supreme Court come from? Oh, they're appointed by presidents. Oh, and where do presidents come And senators. And where do presidents and senators come from? Oh, you have to vote for them, okay? So, um, and I will give you a ranking of the justices, and we did that. We had previous episodes which I went through one by one by one, and I told you what I liked and what I didn't like. And, um, 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 and so I believe that I should, st- I should write books. And I said this before because constitutional law is about the people. And if I'm serious, that's my, if that's seriously my idea, I should write books for generalized. And the challenge is, can I write a book that ordinary people can understand and maybe even enjoy that also doesn't dumb it down? That makes, that pleases me by, you know, uh, um, being a, at a very high level of achievement and sophistication and pleases the people whose rankings I uh, and respect I most crave, um, like you. I told you, I care most of all, not if that I'm cited by everyone in the world. It's nice. I actually am broadly cited, and we'll go through by whom and how and, and what the metrics are. But for me, most important is, am I pleased with this? Do I think I, you know, I, I'm an expert. Do I think this is good work? And do the people that, whom I most value as expert um, um, uh, fellow scholars and or expert readers, people who are really good at actually telling me this is a good book, this is a bad book, what do they think? Well, and I think that uh, you know, that's admirable to, to try to, you know, you've identified the importance of educating the populace on constitutional law and so forth. Um, but to go a step further, you want it respected by people that you care about, but you also want it cited. So in order to be cited, it has to touch on, you know, uh, fun, you know, issues that are, at, that are uh, unsettled. You know that 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 people, you know, have to. One of the many um, gaps between citation. You see, that's why citations are imperfect. So we've talked about this before. Um, I told you a few episodes ago about a really important set of issues about how we think about religious accommodation and the First Amendment. Does it require it in what context? Um, and I thought Amy Coney Barrett wrote her most interesting paragraphs um, of a, a, her entire year on this issue, joined by Brett Kavanaugh, interestingly enough, in the Fulton case, and I wasn't cited in those paragraphs. On the other hand, um, 
I think if you read those paragraphs carefully, it's pretty clear that she's thinking about certain issues that actually a key brief did identify, and that brief was written by Neil Katyal and his colleague, Tom Schmidt, one of my protégés, my former students on the market this year. And in that brief, it turns out, actually, at the key page that, that um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh are obviously thinking about, I actually am cited. Now, suppose I weren't cited by that, okay? But it's obvious that they had read my work and were influenced that even if they didn't cite it. So here I can say, ah, I wasn't cited by Amy Coney Barrett, but I was cited in the brief, and she's actually responding to that brief. And, and, and it's not a surprise that Neil would know my ideas or Tom Schmidt, okay? So, but suppose I hadn't been cited by that. It still might be that um, that was influential. I'm not cited in the Sebelius case. I will never, but I wrote something for the justices um, um, at, at, during the oral argument week saying you should go on the tax theory. That's actually um, um, a tax theory plus a theory of constitutional avoidance that's associated with Louis Brandeis, you know, whose law clerk was Henry Friendly, whose law clerk you were, John Roberts. We did that in a previous episode. Not cited at all. It's possible in 15 years, we, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, um, you will have papers from the justices and, and their law clerks that will be, that become public, and we'll find out, oh, actually someone did read that. Um, some law clerk read that, wrote a memo to the chief justice on that, who changed you know, his mind, because he changed his mind in the writing of the opinion on that. Now, if that happened, you know, I'll be dead by then, but wow, then you'll say, well, that was influence. Um, you know, it, it probably isn't true, but, but I can dream. Okay? It might have happened that way. And there's no citation. So you can be cited and have no influence at all. You're cited for an April Fool's, you know, fun little thing uh, 5,000 times or, or downloaded at least, not cited. But, but down, see, some of these count, um, one of the metrics is not citations, but just downloads. You know, like Nielsen ratings, we can just count downloads, okay? Um, versus citation versus influence and authority. None of these things are quite the same as the others, but let me walk you through some citation things. So, so, um, so, um, and they're connected to audience. Here are, uh, this is a little inside baseball, but I'll tell you about five or six or seven different things we could um, uh, discuss. Citations by judges or by scholars um, um, uh, or um, just um, sales um, of books which is, you know, different than citation to, to, to general audience. Three different things. Um, now, if it's judges, do we care about all judges or just Supreme Court judges? Well, in constitutional, I care about Supreme Court justices because they're the ones who actually make constitutional law and the others, as, as I th- said before, take constitutional law. Some make it, some take it. Um, and so, I, so for me, I care about citations by the Supreme Court. And I care, actually, because I don't want to be ideological. My friend Irwin is always on the left. I don't want that. That's not what I'm trying to do. So it matters to me if I'm reaching justices across the spectrum. So judges versus academics. In academics, do I care about citations by historians or um, political scientists, or am I only interested in law professors. You see, those are, and, and we, can, we can have different citation metrics because some citation metrics are only of citations in judicial opinions. Other citation metrics are citations only in law reviews, which are, you know, as you said, edited by, by, by students. Others are citations in um, uh, um, all of academic scholarship. 
Others, Google scholars, counts all sorts of, 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 of mentions of things, even if you're mentioned in the, the New York Times um, um, or in a presidential speech or something. Um, so um, those, uh, 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 I also introduced a distinction. I said, look, um, are we interested in citations now in the last four or five years or all time? Um, and if it's now, that might give a little bit of an edge to people who are writing about currently, you know, faddish or um, a hot, top fashionable things. If it's all time, that gives a huge advantage to people who've had, you know, 50 years to write things. Even if we're just judging the last five years, if I've had 40 years of scholarship um, and someone else has had only four years, um, even if we're only counting the last four years, you know, I, I just have a lot more um, um, possibilities. Um, so, um, are we uh, thinking about um, if we're looking at citations? So I sometimes say, at least I have four things uh, when I make these distinctions. I say um, some scholars are active and some are emeritus. Some are in my generation and others aren't. Um, I, sometimes I talk about mid-career scholars, roughly between 45 and 65. Before 45, you're kind of a rising scholar. After 65, you're kind of a senior scholar. Sometimes I talk about in my generation. When I'm trying to think about myself, those are four different things. Active scholars in my generation, mid-career scholars. Um, oh, living. Sometimes I just say living. I, I'm sorry, right. Yeah, so living versus dead. Um, um, active versus emeritus. People under 65 or not are people in my cohort. Someone might be 68. They really are, not, you know, senior, but they're in my generational cohort, you know. So those are different um, uh, tests. So um, now, um, suppose, what about co-authorship? Let's say there, there, there are two scholars. One's named Paul McCartney and one's named John Lennon. And they're both great scholars. And suppose they decide to team up. And every article that Paul McCartney writes, he's going to put John Lennon's name on it. And every article that John Lennon writes, he's going to put Paul McCartney's name on it. They've just doubled their, and let's imagine that they are sort of very, um, they're equally great and, and productive. They've just doubled their site counts. Unless you divide by two you know, because they're two authors. Um, and in medicine, as you know, first authors are treated differently than the others. You often have many, many co-authors in, in, a, in, in, a, in a project. First author is important. Last author is important. Middle authors are, are different. So are, are we interested? Um, some of these citation metrics actually only count articles, law review articles cited in other law reviews, assigned online. Others um, are um, lifetime uh, sites of everything, Google Scholars, for example. So there are all these different um, um, issues. Um, here's what I say on my website. Um, in you know, various citation counts, no matter how you slice it or dice it, I'm typically you know, in the top five um, um, uh, in, uh, among um, 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 uh, um, mid-career scholars, uh, under um, 65 and under. Now, that's a very self-serving way of doing it because, you know, I'm getting close to 65 now. <clears throat> um, but, um, uh, you know, or sometimes, and, and I need to correct the record, by the way. Sometimes they said, oh, um, um, so that's among, in Supreme Court sites, I'm actually number one, among um, um, mid-career scholars. And I said, I, I'm actually uh, um, um, number one among active scholars. And I said, there are two people 
who were um, higher than me, um, that were still living, but emeritus. Wayne Lefebvre, uh, who had a Fourth Amendment treaties, and Larry Tribe, who had a constitutional treaties. I forgot one other person, Arthur Miller, um, who started at Harvard and now is at NYU, not the playwright, but the law professor, has a 40-volume, 50-volume treatise. It's, again, about kind of judicial law, court law, um, procedure law. It's called Wright and Miller. Charles Allen Wright is no longer with us. He's passed away. Um, his daughter, Henny, was one of my closer friends in law school, Henrietta Wright, um, who, in the small world department, testified on John Roberts' behalf in his confirmation hearings. Um, but Charles Wright is no longer living. Arthur Miller is, and apparently, I'm told, he still is involved in the treatise. Treatises typically are not produced by one person. You have an army of students and research assistants who are doing all sorts of work under your supervision. They're a different sort of thing than an article, which is a different sort of thing than a, than a book for a general audience. But I omitted Arthur Miller. So on Supreme Court sites, oh, I think I'm actually number one uh, um, among non-emeritus people, um, obviously living. Um, Mary Tribe, uh, Wayne LaFay, and um, um, Arthur Miller. Now, I mentioned actually Richard Posner. I said, oh, he's like the number one sided guy. And you say, oh, I thought, Akil, you just said, you know, you're number one except for a few. Oh, because that, um, why do I see Sunstein and Posner? That's a different site count. That's not among Supreme Court cases. That's in the legal scholarship. The most cited people to, uh, uh, living today are Cass Sunstein, started at University of Chicago, now at, at Harvard, um, and Richard Posner, a retired judge um, um, in the Henry-friendly tradition of kind of the scholar judge. I'm not as big a fan of Richard Posner's body of work, truth be told. He was good, in my view, in private law in certain ways, but not good on constitutional law, unlike Henry Framley, whom he wanted to be like. He wrote one outstanding article on the Fourth Amendment, but much of his other stuff in constitutional, I think, is somewhere between bad and dreadfully bad. Um, whereas Cass Sunstein, I think, is um, amazing. In a Henry Friendly tradition, he writes about private law, he writes about public law, he's interdisciplinary, um, but he's not cited as much by the Supreme Court. He's cited a lot by the Supreme Court, but, but, but I'm actually cited even more. So um, in certain citation, you know, depending, are you counting scholarly citations? Are you counting court citations? If court, all courts or the Supreme Court. Um, if scholarly, um, all journals um, or merely law journals. Do you divide by co-authors? Cass has lots of co-authors. Ian Ayers has lots of co-authors. Um, Robert Post and Reva Siegel, two of my you know uh, uh, friends and colleagues on the Yale Law School, um, uh, write a lot together. They also happen to be married to each other. Um, so they're closer, like Lennon and McCarty. And Jack Balkin co-authors uh, not all of his stuff, but much of it, um, with uh, Sandy Levinson, and they're both co-authors with me and with Reba Siegel on a casebook together, you see. So, so do you divide? It's just more complicated to divide by um, um, uh, the number of authors. So sometimes these sites, you know, are driven just by just um, convenience. Um, and that's true in baseball, too. Like, why is OPS just, you know, on base percentage plus slugging percentage rather than some more complicated, you know, formula of, of aggregation? I'll do it a different way. China won more medals, uh, more gold medals um, at the recent Olympics, but the U.S. More, won more medals overall. Who did better? Like, who cares, you might say. But if you do care, it's going to depend on 
your formula for how many you know silvers equals one gold you know 1.2 silvers two silvers four silvers you know if you're china you know no amount of silvers equals a gold because we china won the gold medal contest so you know this is a bewildering array of of uh, citation criteria and 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 methodologies and so forth and you know i'm left feeling um well Yes, it can be done a lot of different ways, but nobody except maybe you is going to sit there and look at all of these different, you know, approaches and, and you know, for each scholar, look at where they are in, in uh, methodology A, methodology B. Methodology. Now, in your case, when we look at your biography, which written by you, you cite to us um, the fact that you've been cited by the Supreme Court more than other you know, active or mid-career or you know, whatever. You don't put these other ones in. Is that because this is the one where you're number one? Or is it because well, you, consider, you consider that this is the most important way? I say, I say, I say, I say two things on that okay. bio. I'm number one when it comes to the Supreme Court um, among non-emeritus, living mm-hmm. non-emeritus. And no matter how you slice it, no matter how you dice it, there you know, there's Hein online, there's thing called the CISC data, you know, there's Brian Leiter, there are lots of, di- uh, there's Fred Shapiro. Um, um, uh, oh, I, um, we could talk not just about scholars, but scholarship, which individual articles are most cited, okay? And of the 100 most cited articles of all time, I have three of them. There's only one scholar who has more than three. His name is Cass Sunstein. Um, no one has, uh, he has six, you know, no one has five, no one else has six, no one else has five, no one else has four, I think four of us have three or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying no matter how you slice it and dice it, you know, um, how high you are on the top cited articles of all time, how high you are on um, citations over the last five years, how high you are on lifetime citations. There are lots of different ones. I'm saying on every single one of those, I'm in the top five um, among mid-career scholars. Now that's, you know, uh, mid-career means that, for example, um, Erwin Shemarinsky, who's 68, and Cass Sunstein, 69, they're senior scholars. So, so I defined it a certain way. And yes, I defined it that way in part because I do think it's interesting that in all these different ones, no matter which one you use, oh, I'm doing pretty well. Here's one where I'm number one. And here's now a question. Which is it better to be, you know, number one, you know, top in Supreme Court versus, you know, all scholars? Oh, that's going to depend on your formula for success, what it is that you're trying to do. You and I were talking offline about how when we were kids, we used to play this um, Parker Brothers board game called Careers. Um, mm-hmm. And in Careers, um, you each player actually had to define in advance what their formula for success was, how much fame, how much money, how much love, or something like that. There were hearts and, and stars. and Happiness. Hearts were uh, happiness. Uh, okay, happiness. You know, and and money and fame, um, and fame yeah. star. Okay, um, and it could be sixty fame and and zero for the rest, or sixty hearts and zero for the rest, or twenty, twenty, twenty. Okay, um, so how many Supreme Court? I mean, how many um, are, um, citations by academics is um, the equivalent of one U.S. Supreme Court citation? If you're John Roberts. An infinite number. He doesn't care about academic citations. This is just, you know, um, Kant um, and um, and 18th century Bulgaria. This is all BS, okay? 
But Supreme Court cases, citations might count because judges are finding your stuff useful and he's a judge. So you might say, oh, a thousand. If you, you think the Supreme Court is BS, if you think that they're just a bunch of conservative politician hacks, you might actually disrespect someone who look at today's Supreme Court sites because they're, they're, they're Trump appointees or whatever. And you might say, actually, you know, we don't, an academic site is better than a Supreme Court site because it's coming from an academic or something, you know, even a student. Okay. I would say, oh, if you ask me honestly, and I did this before I kind of looked at, at, you know, which formula would be best for me, I'd say Supreme Court site for me is like a hundred sites for, for just ordinary um, uh, uh, scholars. Um, in, uh, and, for, and lower court sites don't matter to me, for me very much. If you're Djokovic, okay, you, do you want to win um, uh, uh, major tournaments? Yes, but you, you care most of all about the Grand Slams, you know, and you're trying to go for, you know, a, a calendar Grand Slam or something. So, so for me, the, the Grand Slam um, events would be, that would be a Supreme Court site, okay? Um, so here are three or four different ways of, of, of coming up with combined, you know, score if, if for con law. See, because it would be ridiculous for tax law because they, they don't get cited in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't do very much tax law. But con law, who actually are the most cited scholars, in fact, eight of the ten, seven of the ten, of the, most, of the ten most cited are our con law people. There are several ways of doing it. We come up with a number. We say Supreme Court sites are the equivalent of 100 um, uh, academic sites. Oh, if you do it that way, I'm probably one or two overall. Um, you could say, here's how we do it. We um, rank ordinarily um, all the scholars by academic sites, Kassansin, you know, Erwin Chemerinsky, whatever, um, ordinarily. Amar is, let's say, nine or ten or eight or seven, depending on how you count. And we rank Supreme Court citations. Tomorrow would be one. So it'd be one on one thing and maybe nine on another. Or eight. And, and we do that for each person. Whoever has the lowest number, we, we rank them equally. Supreme Court is half and, and scholarship is, uh, citations are half. We could come up with a differently weighted formula. But, but if we did have it, we, we add the two and it's the lowest score. Or we could actually look at the actual numbers um, of cardinal citations rather than merely ordinal ranking. Um, and we could say... Sunstein is cited 20,000 times by scholars. Amar is cited um, 12,000 times. So Sunstein, if we just, just, he's the number one, so that's 100. Amar would be 60, you know, and we do that for Supreme Court sites. The number one person, Amar's been cited, you know, 40 times, you know, Sunstein 20 times. So Amar would be 100 on that, and Sunstein would be 50 or something. And we add those numbers together. If we want to be fancier, we could use standard deviation. Um, to normalize both curves even more and do that. We could weight Supreme Court cases more. We could weight scholarship cases more. So you say, okay, Kiel, that's even more bewildering. Who the hell, except you, cares about this? And, and here's what I would say. Well, I might be interested in whether I'm, you know, getting better over time, getting worse, you know, getting better in some ways, worse in others. It just is useful for self-knowledge to see, you know, the arc of my career and maybe I'm learning some things about where the Supreme Court is going more generally because of that, um, or scholarship is going more generally because of that. That might be interesting to me. I can see general trends um, for myself and for others, who, you know, who's trending up. That Oh, 
pay attention to Oren Kerr. He's actually, you know, moving up fast. And uh, pay attention to Will Bode. Will Bode, who happens to be my protege, conservative, clerk for John Roberts, is generating tons of U.S. Supreme Court sites. And, and so I'm saying, ah, Will Bode is maybe this Supreme Court's favorite young, rising constitutional scholar. And in this week's Washington Post, you'll see an article by another one of my uh, favorite students, Steve Vladek, um, on the shadow docket. That's a quote, how the Supreme Court, just since our last episode, denied President Biden's appeal to intervene in a certain context. Um, the shadow docket, and, and, they, and Trump got, um, um, had um, uh, a great track record. He got them 28 times to, to intervene, and so far Biden is 0 for 1. Now, who coined that idea of shadow docket and what does it mean? Well, that's Will Bode. And the idea is the Supreme Court decides 70 cases a year after full oral argument on the merits with elaborate opinions, but is doing other stuff, emergency decisions that don't generate oral argument, that sometimes don't generate an opinion at all, just a one-word verdict, or, or if there is an opinion, it's a very short opinion, short on reasons, often per curiam, not bearing the name of an individual justice. Oh, and we rank justices by how often they're cited by other justices and all the rest. Okay, but, but um, Will says there's this thing called the shadow docket. Important things are happening there. Pay attention to that. That's a nifty idea that Will Bode um, came up with. And if I'm paying attention to metrics, I'm seeing other ways in which, ah, the Supreme Court is taking Will Bode seriously. I think he got cited like three or four times last year. Um, and three or four times um, uh, a year on average, or th- two or three times a year, excuse me, on average for the, the previous three years or something. That's spectacular for a rising scholar. He's under 45 still. So it's telling me stuff about the Supreme Court. It's telling me stuff about scholarship generally. It's telling me stuff generationally. Who are the people who are making an impact, who are, who are getting talked about, who are part of the conversation, who I need to read, just like if I want to watch, if I want to talk to someone at the water cooler, I better watch Seinfeld. So I, you know, have something, you know, watch the Super Bowl because everyone else is, you know, or the World Series, you know, how about them Mets, you know, um, and this year, I actually, I, I should say the San Francisco Giants apparently are doing pretty well this year. Um, better than the Mets. So, um, so I think better than anyone, but I haven't been watching, you know, that carefully this year. Um, but I remember Buster Posey way back in that World Series where he was like amazing in his rookie year. And, and how many catchers in their rookie year were amazing like that? Well, maybe Yogi Bear or something like that. So, oh, but see, I stopped following baseball, truth be told. But, but, but you're asking why should our audience care? Maybe not so much, except now here's where they should care. Because... These rankings of scholars and scholarship are feeding in, whether formally or informally, to rankings of universities. And, that, and there's a lot of money and, and status and, and other things associated with university rankings, U.S. News rankings. Um, and even though U.S. News chose not for its law school part of the equation to formally put into its formula or even to report law school scholar citation data. Um, schools that, med schools that generate a lot of grant money are higher ranked med schools. And universities that have top scholars that are being talked about by members of Congress, presidents, uh, judges and justices, um, and other scholars, um, 
those universities that have those scholars are, are getting um, all sorts of, in effect, uh, plus points in um, a, a ranking system of so, uh, news. So, um, you know, I think this is an important point that, uh, that things happen because of these rankings. Now, of course, that, that testifies to the importance of the rankings. It doesn't necessarily testify to the uh, accuracy of the rankings in terms yes. of, or the precision of the rankings for that matter. Um, and, yeah. and I think that uh, many of us, uh, we're interested in statistics, we're interested in crowdsourcing, we're interested in these things, but we're also interested in subjective evaluations by experts. And so I think uh, in our next episode, when we talk about schools um, some more and books, books. Um, and, and mo- yes, I would like to uh, also ask you um, to give us a little bit of a subjective rankings to so that from an expert yourself, um, so that we can, because when I talk to you about, you know, a judge or something like that, you uh, like, for example, recently, we were talking about the Telford Taylor great lawyer of the 20th century. And when you told me that, I went to Amazon and looked up his book and ordered it. But when I read that so-and-so is cited... And he won the National Book Critics Circle Award, actually, for one of his books. He published like 15 books. And he was was a goyish version of Henry Friendly, Um, went to Harvard Law School, first in his class, one of Frankfurter's hot dogs, that's what the Frankfurter's protégés were called, Frankfurter's hot dogs. Frankfurter was a professor back then. And Telford Taylor and Henry Friendler were rough contemporaries and, and, and very similar in that they were very impressive across the, 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 the board. Yes, and, and, and that's when I get most excited. You know, is you know, you're you're hearing me because oh, these are these are my role models. These are people I look up to. Let me just say one other thing, Andy. Well, let me just finish the thought on on this before. Okay, but then I want to talk about something that you care a lot about, which is you know um, your university stuff. So, but why don't you finish the thought? Yes. So my point here is that you know when I see who's the number one person in citation on some list, that doesn't make me want to go out and buy their book um, the, the same way. So. I think our audience would be, you know, we're providing information for our audience and how to look at these things and be guided in terms of, uh, you know, finding authority there. But I think we'd like also like to have some subjective data or subjective rankings. Yeah. And so maybe you'll provide that to us I w- in I, our next I, episode. I, I, I will. And, and so today, last time we had a whole little Fourth Amendment le- uh, lesson. Today, I'm saying... Henry Friendly, greatest judge of the 20th century, and um, great articles, um, great opinions across the range of public and private law. Let me connect this to something that you know you and I have talked about offline a lot, and even in this podcast, um, which are how university presidents think about the world. Now, what would their ranking be? How much money have I raised compared to my predecessor and compared to my competitors? You know, it's about money. And why do I care about U.S. news rankings? Because U.S. news rankings can help me raise money for my alums. And in turn, money from my alums raised improves my U.S. news rankings because um, um, uh, U.S. news actually counts resources per student. Um, if I have a lot of money, I can, I can bid away maybe um, uh, uh, top scholars from other schools. I can give more scholarships. I can do various things. So, so money, money, money you know, makes the world go round and it's connected to rankings to repeat. I, as a university president, I'm going to be measured, ranked by how much money I raise. Um, and you, and it's going to feed into the U.S. news rankings um, in a feedback loop mechanism 
higher I'm ranked, more alums will give to me, more alums give to me, more I can put into programs that will help rank more. That's how a university president might think. Now, here's what you and I think. Oh, it all depends on how you use the money, okay? Because actually, you could be raising a ton of money and spend it in ways that actually make the, the, the intrinsic educational experience worse, you know? Um, and you and I, we won't go into the details about that, but you and I think that might be happening at Yale um, in, in various ways. So, um, so there's a really good example um, that, we, yes, in the end of the day, data is important, rank is important, but so are just um, uh, uh, assessments of, of excellence, um, and they may be subject, and, and then, but we come back full circle, you might care about what I think, who's good, who's not, all the rest, but people who don't know me, I'm saying, oh, you should pay more attention to my even subjective assessments than to the next fellow on the bar stool. Um, and here are some reasons why, you know, when I say Cass Sunstein's impressive, that's important. And, and I'll give you in the next episode, I'll, we're going to do books. I'll read you some sentences from my friend Erwin Chemerinz, a book that he wrote, a treatise that I don't think is uh, good the way Larry Tribe's treatise is. And, and, I'll, and, and it's not going to be, you know, uh, um, uh, citations. He actually um, is, uh, because Cass Sunstein's on leave and Richard Posner is retired, he was the number one cited law professor in terms of citations um, by other um, uh, uh, in law reviews um, in the last five years. But here's what I told you. He's not cited by justices, uh, um, especially by conservative justices. I personally um, think that the work is not great. Um, uh, and I'll give you reasons for why that's so. I'm, uh, and I did think Larry Tribe's treatise was great, epically great. Um, so um, um, next time around, but, but I have to talk about Chemerinsky because the world's talking about Chemerinsky. He has a new book out, and um, maybe we should invite him on the podcast. Um, uh, um, and uh, so, uh, um, but I will take two sentences from his treatise about Dred Scott and show you why they're not just bad, they're really bad. And... Um, and and you'll have to decide for yourself. And now, but 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 I'm taking the rankings seriously, and the rankings are telling me I have to talk about Chemerinsky because apparently other people think this is important stuff and good stuff, and I have a different view of whether it's really he's not a role model for me, and Cass Sunstein is, and Cass Sunstein, you know, on certain measures is like so far ahead of me. So this is not you're not just hearing like you know, schadenfreude or envy or something like that. My part, there are people who deserve to be, you know, where they are because they do epically good work, even if I don't always agree with them. So who are my role models and why? We'll talk about that and books in the next episode. Until I've already then. told you a little bit about it. And, and Henry Friendly was a great role model. Great. Until then, thank you. <laughs>